over the last few weeks, especially through all the, the turbulence that we've been going through, I've been trying to stay relevant. How about that? What a concept, right? Stay relevant, to stay on point, to be talking about the questions that I've been getting from people because obviously that's what's on our minds and possibly what's on your mind. So I've been trying to kind of field those things, tie them in to how we can make a personal response to the things that are going on around us. These huge macro, even global events that are taking place are something that's way beyond any of us to be able to affect. But we have to create and develop a personal response. How are we going to respond? How are we going to continue to live? What's going to be our attitude toward life? These things are going to absolutely define who we are as a follower of Jesus, as a person, you know, as a decent human being. And so these are the things that we've been trying to do, to take what's out there and then bring it, bring it in, make it personal. Last week, the question that I got was, what about Romans 13? You know, with all the protests that are going on and, and pastors, you know, disobeying uh, state governors and doing this and doing that, you know, Romans 13 is where Paul tells us that we should obey the state authorities in everything that we do, no matter what, because they are ordained by God. They're placed there by God. That's a pretty radical statement because we know how governments go. Absolutely, we're supposed to obey each and every government, no matter who they are, and we're supposed to also assume that God ordained them there, no matter what atrocities they're committing, whatever is going on. Are we really supposed to do that? Do we obey the state? So we talked about that last week. And then afterwards, I was talking to someone who will not be named who said that I didn't answer the question. <laughs> I really didn't answer the question. Now, on one hand, that's not my job. It's not my job to answer questions. But what my job really is, is to lay some new information, to open up a discussion, to maybe tilt the perspective in a new direction so that you become empowered to answer the question for yourself. I mean, I have an opinion like you have an opinion. They're just opinions. But when they become part of our worldview, when they become part of who we are, they can alter the choices and the decisions that we make. They can alter the attitude with which we experience our lives. That's what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to empower us to find the connection with our Father that will change absolutely everything. So on one hand, yeah, it's not my job. But on the other hand, I think I made my opinion pretty clear. I mean, it, it, it always comes out in one way or another. Um, I talked about prescriptive and descriptive commands, and this is such a foundational concept in, in biblical interpretation called hermeneutics, that some texts are prescriptive in that they prescribe an evergreen truth for us, a command, like the golden rule, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Love God with your whole heart, mind, and soul, your neighbor as yourself. Those are going to be true everywhere and every when, no matter what. Other texts are merely describing what is happening at a certain place and time. And we talked about the fact that Paul's letters are written to a specific people, specific peoples in various geographical areas around the Eastern Mediterranean. But they were written in what he calls this present crisis, this present distress. There was something going on that altered the way that the community needed to function. 
And he talked about the time being short because he believed that Jesus was coming back in his lifetime. So given that context, given those restraints, some kind of persecution, some kind of crisis going on, and very short time, he was basically telling people, don't rock the boat, don't fight City Hall because you don't have time to do that. And go through the interior revolution that needs to happen within your own heart, within your own spirit, if you are to be able to have this law of love written on your hearts, that will be your movement into what Jesus calls kingdom. And most importantly, if you don't do the interior revolution first, when you fight the exterior revolution, when you try to change anything in our community or in our society, you can't do it with love and you can't do it with honor. You can't honor everyone because you haven't gone through the change yourself. And so if Paul had had more time, I think he would have established this priority, established this movement, the interior transformation where we just practice being submitted to all the bosses in our lives, practice that submission so that we can then submit to God's spirit and become one with that spirit and then turn our attention outward to help those in our community, but having established a strong foothold so that we're not just flopping about in the debris with everyone else, how can we help? But since he had such short time, he gave that directive. Just don't rock the boat. Keep the status quo. Work interiorly with your Lord. But in case that's not clear, my belief is, is that no, we're not bound to that directive here now because our context is different than that. That was descriptive. But the principle that you can extract from his instruction is prescriptive. It's evergreen. It always applies. We must tend to our spirit and our internal relationship with God first before we turn it out and try to fix things that are out there. So in that spirit... In that same way of going about looking at scriptures, I want to answer another question that I've been getting quite a lot. And this one is, if we are going through all of this turbulence and everything that has been happening in the last few months, are we in the end times? Are the end times coming? Are they here now? Is this the beginning of the sequence that is described in the apocalyptic books in the New Testament and the Old Testament? A survey was recently taken and, uh, in the United States, and it turns out that about 56%, at least, of evangelical and Southern Baptist pastors, about a 1,000 of them who were surveyed, believe that we are in the end times, that this is the sequence. So social media is buzzing about it. I'm always getting text and videos and things that have to do with end times and a lot of questions as well. So let's take a look at another huge question. You know, are we? In the end times, are we there? How in the world can we make an answer to that? Well, same as before, as we were doing, it's not going to be an answer so much as a conversation or a conversation starter. Hopefully that will empower you to extract at least the principle that you can use to be able to live in turbulent times. How do we do that? And how do we do it well? Now, my opinion will probably become clear within the process of having this talk this morning, but that's not the important thing. The important thing is whether we can answer this question or not. 
What is the principle that the scripture is getting to in talking about end times that will allow us to be able to live with love and with honor and with connection through these really turbulent times? Now, generally, is it at all possible to know when the end times will be? Let's take a look at what is called by scholars, the Olivet Discourse. Have you ever heard that one before, the Olivet Discourse? It's a discourse that, it's a, it's a teaching that Jesus gave on the Mount of Olives. That's why it's called the Olivet Discourse. And it occurs in all three synoptic gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so in Matthew, it's the whole chapter 24, and Luke, it's all chapter 13, and I'm sorry, Mark, it's chapter 13, and Luke, it's chapter 21. So it's the whole chapter. If you've got a red-letter Bible, it'll all be in red, because it's Jesus talking. And let's read the setup. Let's read the beginning of it. It's right at Mark 13 at verse 1. I'm going to use Mark because it's the shortest and most condensed version. This Olivet Discourse is sometimes called the Little Apocalypse because it is the, the one place in the New Testament where this full-on apocalyptic genre is, is uh, just encapsulated, at least in the Gospels. We also have the Book of Revelation, of course. But in Mark 13, verse 1, as he was going out of the temple, this is Jesus going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. So imagine this. They're walking out of the temple and looking back at the magnificent edifice of the, of the temple, the gleaming gold and the horns and the, of the altar all there. And he's saying, Look at that. How amazing this is. And Jesus says to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us when these things will be. And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? So this is the setup to the entire chapter. And it's really clear, it should be really clear, that the context for everything that Jesus is going to answer now is about the fall of Jerusalem and the fall of the temple, which occurred historically about 40 years later, in the year 70 CE. The Romans came in and they literally took every single stone down of the temple, leveled the city of Jerusalem. And so Jesus is talking about this And the classic question comes up. He makes a comment. It's all coming down. When will it be coming down? Now, isn't that the natural thing? Wouldn't you all want to know when is this going to happen? And after giving all of the details of the cataclysm, Jesus is talking to them about very specific things. Using the rules of context, this whole chapter should be about Jerusalem, but the language in it of all the details that he gives and the actual details that he gives seem to point in all directions at once. It seems to point to the past, it points to the present, and it points to the future. This is the confusing thing, especially about apocalyptic apocalyptic writing in general, but in this one in particular. He uses a phrase called the abomination of desolation, and in Mark's version, he ties it to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament that uses the same phrase. Well, Daniel written probably at the latest around the 3rd or 4th century BCE, points most likely to 168 BCE, when Antiochus Epiphanes, the, the, the Greek ruler, came through and desolated and desecrated the temple. He literally took over the city. 
He erected a statue of Zeus, if you could imagine, in the Holy of Holies, and sacrificed a pig on the altar. Okay, if you know anything about the Jews and pork and all of that, you can imagine the desecration. It sparked the, the revolution, the Maccabean Revolt, which eventually wrested power away from the Greeks for a while. So we could say that this was fulfilled in 168, before Jesus, by two centuries almost. But it can also look forward to when the Romans took down the city and took down the temple in 70. But Christians look at this, and they see a full end-time future fulfillment of this passage, that it hasn't yet been fulfilled. And so for 2,000 years, no one has been able to in any way agree on what this discourse is all about. What is Jesus talking about? When is all of this going to be fulfilled? There are actually four main ways that that, uh, Christians look at prophetic and apocalyptic passages. I want to just talk about three of them for a second. Idealism, preterism, and futurism. Idealism looks at these type of, of, of literature passages and says that it's all symbolic. It's not really tied to any kind of time, and it's not looking at one-to-one details being tied to historical events. Preterism says that everything is being fulfilled in the past. There is no future component, or most of it has been fulfilled in the past, and maybe a couple of things are going to be fulfilled in the future. And, of course, futurism is what we're typically used to in evangelical circles, that everything is yet to be fulfilled and there will be an end time sequence that can be known as we look at the details of the apocalyptic passages. Now, we can get so lost in the weeds here and I don't want to do that. I mean, there, it, there's so much complexity and layer upon layer of complexity and that's not the purpose of what we're trying to do. But Jesus makes three clear statements in the passage that I just read. And I'm sorry, in the passage at the end, he makes three clear statements that I want to try to see if we can look at and get where he's going with this so that it can direct us where we need to go. So after he gives all of the, the uh, details of the cataclysm that is to come at verse 28, still in Mark 13, he says, now learn the parable of the fig tree. All three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have this parable in it. When its branches, when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near, right at the door. What things is he talking about? He's talking about wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and stars falling from the sky. All of the cataclysmic details that is typical of apocalyptic Jewish literature. When you see all these things, just like you know that the season is coming you can know that this season is coming as well. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. So of all the things that we can't know and have divided us as a church for 2,000 years, if we focus there, we're going to be in confusion. But if we focus on what we can know, and Jesus is pretty clear here, 
What do we know about this discourse? What can we know about all apocalyptic literature? First, with this budding fig tree, he says that you can know signs of the season. You can look at what's going on and start to discern something. Problem here is every single generation since the crucifixion has seen signs that they believe were the signs of the end times. How can we know? It hasn't happened yet. There has been so many predictions of the end times based on, you know, people studying and looking at these signs. So it's not objective. It's still subjective. And we can't know for sure. We can't put anything solid on that. The second thing he says is that this generation, this one that's right here in front of me right now, is going to see the fulfillment of what I'm talking about. Well, that actually happened with the Romans. That generation was still alive 40 years later, most of them, some of them, to see what actually happened. And it seems really clear that Jesus is talking about something that happened back then and not still now. But that's not the way that we look at it. We still are looking for a fulfillment in the future. In 1970, Hal Lindsey wrote a book called Late Great Planet Earth. I don't know if any of you remember it or, or read it at the time. Um, and it was talking about these issues and interpreting the scriptures in such a way that he reinterpreted this idea of the generation, not the generation that Jesus was talking to, but the generation that was alive when Israel was reestablished as a country. That was the generation Jesus was talking about. I don't know the rationale for why he was able to make that intellectual shift, but he did. And that gave him a date of 1948, when Israel was reestablished after World War II. He said, that generation will not pass away. And then he said, you know, generation being around 40 years, he set the end date of the, of the end of the world for 1988. Didn't happen. And when it didn't happen, what he did was reinterpret things and said, well, okay, 40 years was off, it's really 100 years, and so we are off to the races. But my point is, is that even though Jesus seems to be really clear about what he's saying here, we still interpret in so many different ways that we can get all sorts of different answers. But the last one, I think, is the one that we need to pay attention to because I don't know how we get around it. I mean, we do. Scholars do. Commentators do. Pastors do. But Jesus says no one knows the hour or the day, the time that these things will happen. Not the angels in heaven and not the Son, not me, myself. Only the Father knows. That's it. I don't know how you get around that. It's emphatic, period, end of report. But no, we do. It seems like a clear statement, but it still doesn't seem to help us to get around continuing to ask these questions and to predict certain things. So what in the world is going on? To me, when I look at this and I see everything that has been written as much as I've been able to read anyway, what I see is a classic clash between a Western little, literal reading of a text that is highly figurative and is a poetic genre of literature within Judaism, apocalyptic literature, prophetic literature. What is the difference between the two? Now, this is going to be real general, but maybe it'll give you an idea. The prophet, first of all, is one who speaks for God, speaks God's words. Foretelling the future is just an incidental quality to this. The idea is the prophet is speaking for God. 
in the prophetic books, they generally occur before the national catastrophe. There basically have been two major ones in, in, in Israel's history, and it was the destruction of both their temples, the first temple of Solomon and the second temple that was erected after, and they were both destroyed. And leading up to each national catastrophe, the prophetic books, these prophets are speaking for God, saying, you are headed off a cliff. If you don't change your course, you're going to have this horrible thing happen to you. So repent. Literally change directions. Amend your ways. Bring your heart back to where it belongs, to your God. And this can be averted. The purpose of a prophetic book is to warn, but also to give hope that the difficulty that's on the horizon, that if you're paying attention, you can see, doesn't have to happen. You can move in another direction. You can bring yourself back. And of course, the Jews understood that for a prophet to be true, the prophecy had to be fulfilled within the generation that heard the prophetic utterance in the first place. Now, apocalyptic literature is something that developed in Israel in the centuries after the Babylonian exile. So the apocalyptic books come after the catastrophe. Now you're sitting in your smoking crater and everything that you knew and everything that you held dear is gone. How are you going to still see that God's promises are still active? How are you going to have the hope to move through when everything that you see is gone? The apocalyptic books are again about hope, about instilling hope, instilling patience and trust in God's promises, even though you have no visible cue that these things are going to take place. It looks like everything is lost, everything is dust. But the apocalyptic books are saying, even if God has to step directly into history and intervene himself, his promises are going to be fulfilled. You do not need to worry about this. And so we have very similar books, both prophets uttering out of both books, but happening on either side of a national catastrophe, but both trying to instill hope. First, in the avoidance of the catastrophe, and secondly, in moving through the difficulty. So books like Ezekiel and Daniel and all of the prophets, Isaiah has apocalyptic passages within his book. The Olivet Discourse, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians, and the book of Revelation in the New Testament. Before and after each temple's fall, we see these books. And if you're wondering, apocalyptic simply means, apocalypse simply means revelation. It means an unveiling. It means a new set of information, something that we couldn't know any other way. So how are we supposed to understand these books? How are we supposed to understand the horrific imagery that they carry? Because it's, it's, if you've read them, you know what I'm talking about. Wars and pestilence and, and everything going wrong that you can possibly imagine. Makes these last three months look like Disneyland, to tell the truth. So it creates this worry. It creates fear. It creates judgment in us. Who's in? Who's out? Right? That's what we're thinking. Who is part of the saved remnant that's going to get through this unscathed? And who's not? All these things are being engendered by these books because of the way that they read. And yet, what does Jesus tell us specifically? Don't worry. Don't fear. Don't judge. And yet, that's exactly what is evoked by these books as we read them. 
Jesus says, don't worry, don't judge, don't fear. Focus on how to live in the kingdom. That's Jesus' focus. Everything he's teaching, how do we live in the kingdom? See, we're focused on the what. We're focused on the details. We're focused on times and dates and and risk-free action plans, all these things. These are the what's that we're focused on. And Jesus and God are always focused on the how. How do we conduct ourselves as we're moving through times that we can't control, we can't predict, but they're going to come upon us at times? How do we move through? The prophetic and apocalyptic books are focused on how to live in turbulent times with faith and hope and love, keeping our soul intact. Now, Jesus and Israel's main metaphor for how to live between heaven and earth, as the Jews understood us all living, is none other than their wedding feast, their wedding customs, which were so specific. And I want to try to connect these two because I think the way that we can understand apocalyptic books is through the Jewish wedding feast. Now, really quickly, because I know some of you have heard this before, but the Jewish wedding feast was actually conducted in two parts. The first, the Kedushin, was the betrothal. And the second, the Nisuin, was the actual wedding ceremony itself when the marriage was actually consummated. In the betrothal, all right, even though it was a legally binding action, You would have to get a divorce, even from the betrothal. It wasn't consummated until the wedding ceremony. But there could be up to one to two years between those two events. So marriages were arranged back in the ancient times in Jesus' day. The fathers of the clans would arrange the wedding, sometimes through a shadkan, who was a matchmaker. Yeah, Jewish matchmakers, they're real. And so sometimes it it would be arranged through the matchmaker. But bride and groom oftentimes never even met each other until the day of their betrothal when it was too late to get out of it, right? Interesting system. But the marriage would be arranged by the fathers, and then the father would send his son, the bridegroom, to the bride's house. You never got a son-in-law in in your house. You only got daughter-in-laws. The sons stayed home. The girls are the ones that moved to the home of of their husband and of the father's house. And so the bridegroom would go to the house of the bride, and he would bring with him a couple of things. He would bring with him first the, the ketubah, which was the marriage contract itself, and he would also bring the mohar, which was the dowry, literally the amount that was paid to the bride's family for the loss of her presence and the loss of her labor. That was an important thing, especially in subsistence times. And so the groom would come, to the bride's house with all the ceremony laden with all these gifts. He would read the ketubah, the, the, uh, the contract, and the bride, as the bride accepted, then the betrothal would be consummated. And they, the betrothal part, they would drink a cup of kadush, which was the first of two cups that would be drunk, one at the betrothal and one at the marriage. And that would seal that betrothal. And before he left to go back home again, he would give what was called the tenaim. The tenaim was a formal promise that he would make to the bride in the hearing of the entire family for him to return and bring her back as his wife to his father's house. And then he would leave. And he would go back to his father's house and he would build what was called the hadar, or sometimes translated as a mansion. It was an addition to the father's estate, the father's home, where they would be living. And it was their wing of the estate, if you will. 
And he didn't know when he was coming back because the father had to approve the work that he was doing. It was the father's discretion to say, okay, everything, all the preparations are complete. You are now free to go get your bride. So literally, the bride didn't know. The bride's family didn't know. The bridegroom didn't know. Nobody knew because it was up to the father to give him the okay to be able to go back. And when he went back with all his bridegrooms, he would go back traditionally in the middle of the night by stealth. He wouldn't let anybody know. He would show up on the edge of town, and they would blow the shofar, the ram's horn, at the edge of town in the middle of the night. And that would be the signal. And it was a great game because all the bridesmaids, remember these girls are 12 or 13 years old. As soon as they could have children, they were being married. And so these were young girls having the time of their lives. You know, there wasn't a lot of entertainment back in the first century in Judea. This was one of the biggest things that would happen in any village. And so the shofar blows and the girls, you can imagine, screaming and giggling and getting their lamps and running out. And they would literally light their lamps and light the way from where the groom was in the middle of the night back to the bride's house. And as the groom entered the bride's house, the father would ceremonially turn his face and he would snatch the bride up. It was kind of like one of those raids where they come and take you out. You know, they snatch the bride and they would put her on a raised litter and literally carry her back to the groom's house. And so even today in Jewish weddings, you see them lifting up, often just on a chair, the bride and the groom and carrying them around the room, which is a, a remnant of this early tradition. And once they get back to the, the father's house, they would have the actual Nisuin, the marriage ceremony, which would last for eight days, right? And there, were more, there was a second cup that was drunk and other things that would happen, and then the marriage would be consummated. So if you think about all of those pieces that I have just given you, everything that has happened here, I want to read through, and we're going to do this kind of quickly because I know it's, we're getting on in time here, but I want to read you some of the passages from the apocalyptic books and just passages within the New Testament and see how they all are carrying this imagery forward. Israel understood itself as the bride of Yahweh, the bride of Yahweh. The church understands itself as the bride of Christ. We put ourselves in the position of the bride and God in the position of the bridegroom. That in the context of what we've just talked about in terms of the marriage ceremony is so important to understand. Because listen here, let's start with the Kedushin, with the betrothal at Matthew 26, verse 27. And when Jesus had taken a cup and given thanks, here we are at the Lord's Supper, right? And he gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Do you see what he's saying? The Kaddush, that first cup that was drunk at the betrothal, was not drunk again between bridegroom and bride until the Nisuin, until the consummation at the end. This is an echo of that. And these first followers of Jesus would have caught those references. They lived this marriage ceremony. It was the biggest thing that happened in their villages. They understood it intimately. And when he says, I'm drinking this cup with you and I won't drink it again until we're in my father's house, that rings, right? That rings in their heads. The Tenayim, the promise to return, John 14, starting at verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. 
Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places or mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So there's Jesus going to prepare the mansion, prepare the place for the bride, but promising to return and bring them back with him. In terms of preparing the Hadar, preparing this place for the bride's home, at Mark 13, verse 32, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. As we just described, nobody knows, not even the bridegroom, only the Father. And when the groom returns with a shout, the trumpet, the shofar, and the lamps that are being lit, which is equated to lightning, the lapidim, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. These are allusions to that moment that the groom comes back and blows the shofar at the edge of the, of the village. At Matthew 27, I'm sorry, Matthew 24, verse 27, this is in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will be the coming of man, the Son of Man be. Moving to verse 30, and then the signs of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. In the snatching of the bride in the middle of the night, the word that's used is to be caught up. In Latin, that word is raptus, which is where we get the word rapture from. These are echoes that have been understood as the doctrine of the rapture itself. 1 Thessalonians 4.17, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up, that's raptus, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. But it's that illusion of the groom coming and snatching his bride ceremonially. 1 Corinthians 15 at 51, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. You see the shofar being blown and being snatched up, even the dead. Matthew 24, verse 37. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Images of this snatching away, but all within the context of the marriage ceremony. And finally, the Nisuin, this raising up and the consummation. John six forty three. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You see those illusions? Jesus being sent by the Father to get his bride to be raised up on the last day. Entering the chuppah 
which was the covering for the actual marriage ceremony, and the Hadar, which was the residence. Revelation 21, 3 to 5. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. The tabernacle, the mansion, the Hadar. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And finally, at Revelation 21, verse 9, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. That image of the final Hadar, the final residence coming down. Now I just blew through a lot of scripture and it's not important to remember these scriptures and remember all of these passages. But just try to see the pattern. Try to see the conscious connection to this metaphor that was at the center of Jewish life to understand themselves as the bride of their God. Israel, the bride of Yahweh, the church, the bride of Christ. Jesus calls himself the groom. At Mark 2, when the followers of John who are fasting, John was all about fasting, right? Come to Jesus and his followers who are eating and drinking and having a great old time, and they say, why aren't you fasting the way we fast? And he says, They have the bridegroom with them. So they're not going to fast when the bridegroom is there. That's the party time. But there will come a time when the bridegroom will be taken away, and then they'll fast. Jesus likened himself to the bridegroom. All human history in this metaphor is lived between the Kedushan and the Nisuin. Do you see that? That's where we are right now, both individually in our life, living between heaven and earth, living between betrothal and consummation. This is where we live. Our entire lives are between these two points. We can't know when the groom is coming. Jesus told us that. It's not going to happen. Whoever is telling you they know, they're selling something. It's just that simple. Jesus said no, but what he did say that you can know and you can know with absolute clarity and abundance is how to live in this time. How is that? As the Jewish bride lives, what was that? Think about it. A 12 or 13-year-old girl, all she's known her entire life is this family and this homestead where she lives. She meets a man that she doesn't know who has promised to come and take her back. And she knows that her new life is going to be the fulfillment of who she is as a young Jewish girl. She will be wife. She will be mother. She will be head of household. All sorts of things are waiting for her, and she can anticipate those and be absolutely excited about what is coming. Something, any moment, is coming. This moment, it could be. Any moment, my, my life will completely change and I will be transported into the fulfillment of why I am here. And yet, at that moment, I will also lose everything that I have ever known and everyone that I love and everyone that I am connected to. And so that imminence, 
that immediacy gives a sense of presence, gives a sense of gratitude for what you have right now that can be changed at any moment, even as you're excited about what is coming. That balance between sweet anticipation and gratitude for what you have This is the way that you live between heaven and earth, between betrothal and consummation. This is how we live our lives in kingdom, even through turbulent times. This is what the scriptures are trying to get across to us. Despite the horrific imagery of these books, prophetic and apocalyptic books are trying to instill the hope and the encouragement and the trust to live in that balance as the Jewish bride was to live in that period between her betrothal and her marriage. That's it. Hope in a change of direction, hope in the fulfillment of God's promise, return to unity when God comes back to claim us, Jesus told his disciples who asked when the world would come, when when the end would come, that only the Father knows and reminded them of their status as the bride at the same time. So why are we still asking? I mean, it's natural for us to do so, but the answer hasn't changed in 2,000 years. There is no what answer that we can get. There is only how. Any view of the end times that we establish that focuses on when is doomed to failure. There is only a timeless how that is given as an answer. And any view of the end times that causes us to worry, causes us to fear, causes us to judge, has already failed. It has missed the absolute point of what this is all about. I don't know what the end times will look like, and I certainly don't know when the end times are going to occur. I don't even know if we've got it all right in terms of the way that we interpret the end times. Nobody does, no matter what they say. And more importantly, at this stage in my life anyway, I don't care. It doesn't matter. The what and the when is not important. Only how. The how is extremely important. Living in the hope and the trust till I die or until I'm raptured, if that's the case, I'll take it. I don't count on it, but I'll take it if it comes. But to live in that how until something changes, radically changes my life, that I can do. Now, If you didn't hear anything else that I just said in the last 40 minutes or whatever it's been in this message, just please hear this. Because our literal reading of the apocalyptic literature creates a terrifying view of God. How could it recreate anything else? If we're reading it literally, if we're listening to the people who are interpreting it for us, it makes us fearful, it makes us worry. It gives us a bunker mentality of trying to save ourselves. But hear this. As scary as our world can be, as scary sometimes as Scripture sounds, if we're afraid of God, we don't know God. We don't trust God. Because if God is who Jesus said he is, 
we needn't worry about a thing. And if God is not who Jesus says he is, then we shouldn't be following, and we needn't worry about a thing. In other words, we've got no need to worry at all. Because a God who can't love as Jesus loved is not God. And we don't need to be afraid of a God who is not God. And we don't need to be afraid of a God who is love. We just don't need to be afraid. That's the message of prophetic and apocalyptic literature. And if you get that, you can forget about all the other details. It'll bring you right back to living between heaven and earth with the immediacy, the gratitude, and the anticipation of something great coming around the corner at any moment that will transform absolutely everything. Let's pray. Father, we're living in turbulent times, and it's scary, it's disheartening, it's discouraging, sometimes it's heartbreaking. Help us to focus on the right things that will get us into a place where we can really experience your presence and know you in such a way that we begin to trust so we can live in this space with that attitude that will take us through and more importantly will allow us to help others to work for change that is so needed in our society and in our communities in a way that continues to honor you and honor everyone that we encounter. Help us to change interiorly, to fight that internal revolution so then we can then turn outward and be a blessing to our communities. Help us to know the difference. Help us to focus in such a way on your word that we can see this and know that we know that everything is all right in you, even when it seems wrong. So, Father, thank you once again for everything that you have given us, every tool, every guide that you've given us. Help us to be strong. Help us to persevere. And most importantly, give us the desire that will take us beyond even what we think we can do to come closer to you every single day. For your love, Lord, we are grateful. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen.